Okay. So we are doing now Friday's portion. Yesterday, we said that Moses realized this is an opportune time. After God forgave the Jews for the sin of the golden calf, he pushed to see the face of God, he was told the 13 attributes of mercy. He's asking God to make the Jews different than the rest of the world and to be among them. So in today's portion, God responds and he says, God says, Behold, I enter a covenant before your entire people. I shall make distinctions such as has never been created in the entire world and among all the nations and the entire people in whose midst you are. We'll see the work of God, for it is awesome that I'm about to do with you. So Rashi explains, I'm going to enter a covenant over this concept of setting the Jews apart from the other nations. And what is this covenant? I'm going to make a distinction. Rashi says this needs to be set apart. That you're going to be separated from the other nations, as Moses requested. That my divine presence will not rest on them, it will only rest on the Jewish people. Be aware of what I command you today. Behold, I drive out before you the Amiri and the Kanani and the Chiti and the Priti and the Chivani Vusi. Rashi says there are six nations here, but we know in, the, in, in Israel there were seven. But the seventh nation, the Gergashi, who was the smallest of the nations, they picked up and left. In other words, everybody knew what God had done to the Egyptians. Everybody knew for 40 years how the Jews are living in this miraculous fashion in the desert. Everyone knows they're heading toward Israel. So it was obvious they were going to Israel and they were going to decimate the people. The Gashi left. The other nations stayed and were killed. Beware lest you enter a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you come, lest it be a snare in your midst. Rather, you shall break apart their altar, smash their standing stones, cut down its idol trees. Idol trees are trees. Any tree they worship is this idol tree. You shall not prostrate yourself to an alien god, for God zealous is his name. He is a zealous God. So zealous is his name. Rashi says means he's zealous to exact payment. He does not overlook. This is what we mean by zealous. Someone who's seizing the opportunity of his victory and exacts retribution from his enemies. Lest you enter a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and they will stray after their God, sacrifice to their God, and he will invite you and you will eat from his sacrifice. Rashi says that you think you're doing anything wrong. You're not serving an idol. This non-Jew served the idol. And he offers sacrifices, and you're eating from them. Kosher food. <laughs> you don't think there's any problem. But God is saying, if you eat from the sacrifice that were offered to an idol, I'm considering it as if you're endorsing worshiping idols. Why? Is the problem. Because God's saying, from eating from these pagan sacrifices, you're going to come to intermarry. And if you're going to come to intermarry, then these heathen girls... And become wise for your sons, and they're going to educate your grandchildren to turn to idols. So ultimately, from eating from the sacrifices, this too close, too comfortable mingling is going to lead to intermarriage. It's going to lead to idolatry among your descendants. So I'm already counting as idolatry now. Like, don't go there. Don't think it's okay. Don't go there. Of course, this very much relates to we're just coming from Purim, where we know, according to many. The sin of the Jews was eating from the feast of Ahasuerus. And you will take from their daughters for your sons, and the daughters will stray after their gods, and entice your sons to stray after their gods, as we just explained. You shall not make yourself molten gods. Okay, now we're beginning to discuss 
these other holidays and details that have to do with them. You shall observe the festival of matzahs for seven-day periods of matzahs, as I've commanded you at the appointed time in the month of spring, for in the month of the first ripened produce, you went forth from Egypt. So the month Chodesh Aviv, the month of the first ripened produce, this is the month when the produce first comes to fruition and it's ripening. This is when we leave Egypt. For this reason, of course, we have all the commandments of having a leap year to always make sure that Passover stays in the springtime, meaning the verse here is making it obligatory that Passover is not just the 15th of the Jewish month of Nisan, but it's in the springtime. And if we didn't have this leap year concept, since the solar system and the lunar system are so separate, it would shift further and further away, and then eventually Passover would not be in the spring anymore. So therefore, to keep it on target, instead of it shifting to come in the summer months, that's when we have the idea of the leap year, to like get us back in sync with the solar calendar and Passover being in the springtime. So it's interesting, myriads of laws, very complex, are also fulfilled this one concept of Passover being in the springtime. Each first of the womb is mine, and all your livestock that produce a male, the first of an ox or sheep. Rashi says, we have here two phrases. First, each first of the womb is mine, and then, and all your livestock that produce a male, the first of an ox or sheep. So the verse is surely not redundant. So the phrase, each first of the womb is mine, must refer to a male child, a human child, because the rest of the verse is clearly referring to animal. And all your livestock that produce a male means all your life that will give birth to a male among the first of the oxen or sheep. This is a sort of an awkward phrase. Rashi translating it, and the Rashi says, this word first is like an opening. It's opening up the womb. And Rashi also says, this is in the Hebrew, it says, So what's the structure of tizachar? So Rashi says it's feminine, third person, singular, meaning the female is giving birth, as versus, for example, Onkelis, who understands this construction, this grammatical construction of Tizachar, a second person masculine, you shall sanctify the male. The first of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, and if you do not redeem it, you shall break its neck. All firstborn among your sons you shall redeem, they shall not be seen before me empty-handed. So a few things gone in this verse. First, we have here the first one of a donkey to redeem, and Rashi clearly says this is the only redemption that has to do with an impure animal, meaning the firstborn male Jew, the boy that's born, firstborn, there was not a stillborn before, there was not a miscarriage before, he was not born cesarean, there's no priestly family, Levi or Cohen, on either side, he gets redeemed. Among the animals, any kosher animal, the firstborn, if the firstborn's a male, gets redeemed. Among the non-kosher animals, we only do this for the donkey. If the firstborn of a donkey is a male, there's also the concept of redemption, only uniquely for that animal, as it says, because the firstborn of the Egyptians, work, work, the, the Egyptians are called the donkeys, or because the donkeys helped us when we left Egypt, that we loaded everything on the donkeys and took out all this wealth. So we redeem these donkeys with a lamb or a kid meaning you give this lamb or kid to the priest. And the Rashi explains, very interestingly, the lamb or kid is considered unsanctified when it's in the possession of the priest, and he could, he could use it however he wants. He can have lamp tops, or he can have it work for him. And that which comes from the donkey, you can use for work in your own, meaning 
generally, if something is a holy object and it's redeemed, the sanctity of that object is transferred to the other object that redeems it. But that's not true with the firstborn donkey. The firstborn donkey is sanctified until it's redeemed. Once it's redeemed, the donkey is no longer sacred, it's redeemed. But the animal it was redeemed with, the kid or the goat, uh, the sheep, the lamb, the goat, is not considered holy. And so the sanctity didn't pass to that animal, which therefore Rashi is clearly saying that you can use it to work. You can do whatever you want. That firstborn donkey is no longer holy, and the animal that redeemed is also not holy. Because innately here we're talking about a not kosher animal. In contrast, the firstborn of the kosher animal is offered on the altar by the Kohen if it has no blemishes. And if it does, it also is treated with respect because of its sanctity. Now let's say you don't go through this procedure for whatever reason. You have a donkey and it had a firstborn baby, but it's just too hard for you to get a kid or a lamb or a goat. You can't be bothered. So then the law is you have to break the neck of this firstborn donkey. The Rashi says, because you refused to receive the firstborn of the donkey with a sheep, meaning you caused this financial loss to the priest because the priest is supposed to get a sheep out of this. So therefore, your own money is going to be lost and you're going to lose the firstborn donkey. And then the verse says, all the firstborn among your sons you shall redeem, which Rashi says is at five coins, five shkolen, five shkolen. And then the verse concludes, you should not be seen before me empty-handed. So that sort of is like, what does that have to do with anything? Here we're talking about, these two verses are talking about redeeming the firstborn male, redeeming the firstborn kosher animal, redeeming the firstborn donkey, exchanging the firstborn donkey with the sheep. If you don't, what happens? All the firstborn of your children, it's with five coins. And then, don't be seen before me empty-handed. So like, what? So simply speaking, where she says it's a completely separate statement that happens to be, you know, stripped in the same book and the same verse. It has nothing to do with what we're just talking about. Because obviously, in terms of redeeming the firstborn, we have no concept of be seen empty-handed. It has nothing to do with the temple. It's a different issue that happens to be in the same verse. When you go to Jerusalem for the festivals three times a year, you know, Passover, Shavuos, and Sukkot, don't come empty-handed. Bring these offerings of seemly, the offering. That's the simple meaning because we can't figure out any connection between don't come empty-handed and the redemption of the firstborn. But a rabbi said that this is actually a gzera shava. A gzera shava means if there's, we derive information, if something says explicitly in one context and supplied to another context because it's an identical word, we can't transfer the information. So here we're talking about redeeming the firstborn with these five coins. When we speak of sending away the slave, if we had a Jewish slave that worked for us, when their time is over, we have a command. It's a biblical command to let them go with gifts, to gift them. And the verse lists all the various things we have to gift them from. We have to gift them um, from our wines, from our granaries, from our threshing floor, from our flocks. But it doesn't say how much we have to gift them. It's just listing from your flocks, from your threshing floor, from your wine press. You have to gift this released slave. So since you buy that slave, the word empty-handed is used. And since 
Now, in our verse, the word empty-handed is used. This is what we're calling a gzera shava that we learn because the same word is used that what we're discussing here applies there, which means here we're discussing how do we redeem the firstborn male with five coins, five shkolim, five slime. So, too, each coin, I mean, a coin doesn't mean like a penny. It means what's this amount of weight in pure silver. So, what is equal to in, in modern currency sort of depends on the fluctuating value of silver because it's a weight of a certain silver coin. Nowadays, it's about $20 each coin, each shekel, each sella. So if you were redeeming a firstborn, you need these five silver coins, and the value is approximately $100 today. If the price of silver goes up, it will be more. If the price of silver goes down, it will be less. So the same way you have to redeem this male child with five skull and five pure silver coins of this certain weight, so too when you gift this released servant, this released slave from your threshing floor and your granaries and your flocks, each gift, each item has to have the value of at least five shkolim, five slotim, these five coins, which again nowadays would mean about $100 worth from the wine and from the threshing floor and from the flock. How do we make that connection with one after the other? Because it says here empty-handed, and it says about the slave that's being released empty-handed. So our sages learn why is the word repeated. Seemingly this phrase has nothing to do with anything. It, it has, serves no purpose. No, the purpose is to connect these two concepts that just as here we're talking about five silver coins to redeem the firstborn, so too for that released slave when his indentureship is up, he also, from each type of gift you give him, it has to have a financial amount, not whatever you want. Well, I'll give him a bottle of wine. No, it has to at least be the value of these five silver coins. Okay, the next verse. For a six-day period you may work, and on the seventh day you shall desist. You shall desist from plowing and from harvesting. So Rashi says, why are we talking about plowing and harvesting? So some rabbis say this verse refers not only to the weekly Sabbath, as it seems to, but also to the plowing of the year preceding the sabbatical year, preceding the seventh year. Now, obviously, we know in the seventh year we can't work the land. We can't plow and we can't harvest as is a normal year because it's a sabbatical year. But this verse is adding that the plowing preceding the seventh year, meaning plowing during the end of the sixth year, and the harvesting of the seventh year that goes to the year after the seventh year, in both of those we also can't do it regularly, meaning it's not just from the first day of Rosh Hashanah of the sabbatical year, until the last day, the 29th of Elul of the sabbatical year, no plowing, no threshing, but before and after, of course, is fine. No, there's a connection, and therefore, just like in Shabbos, we don't come into Shabbos by the second. We add minutes. In Chicago, we had 20 minutes before for a woman who's lighting the candles. A man, even a man, has to add a few minutes. One's not allowed to go in the second to Sabbath. We add from the profane to the holy. So similarly, in the sabbatical year, we're adding from the profane, from the secular, from the mundane to the holy. So the harvesting right after the sabbatical year and the plowing right before also cannot be done to add from the secular to the holy.
So that is one way of understanding it. Meaning, our rabbis are questioning, why does it say you can't plow and you can't harvest? We know that. What's it talking about? So some rabbis are saying, as I just explained, this is this reference to right before and right after the sabbatical year. Other rabbi says, no, that's not what the verse is talking about. The verse isn't talking about the sabbatical year. The verse is talking about the, exactly what the verse sounds like it's talking about, the weekly Sabbath. We have six days, and then we have the Sabbath, the seventh. But then why are we mentioning, then we go back to our original question. So why does the verse say, and on the seventh day you shall desist? You shall desist from plowing and from harvesting. What do you mean desist from plowing and from harvesting? There's 39 things I desist from, not just plowing and harvesting. So our rabbis say they were singled out to be mentioned to tell you that just as plowing is optional, meaning it's optional from a legal standpoint, there's never a Jewish obligation, thou shalt plow. So too, harvesting is optional, meaning harvesting forbidden on the Sabbath is optional harvesting. So if there's a harvest that's mandatory according to Jewish law, you can do it on the Sabbath. Now, what a harvesting are we talking about here? When will God say, thou shalt harvest? We're talking about the harvesting of the Omer. The Omer is the meal offering of barley brought on the 16th of Nisan, the second day of Passover. This has to be harvested the night before it was offered. So when the 16th of Nisan comes out on the Sabbath, the night before, which is Friday night, we have to harvest it. Well, it's Friday night. You're not allowed to harvest. It's the Sabbath. Yes, but this verse is teaching us that if there's a mandatory from Jewish law, not like I must harvest because a rain's going to come and ruin my crops or a drought's going to come and ruin my crops or locusts are coming and ruining my crops. No, we don't mean that. We mean mandatory because Jewish law is mandating the harvest. So the Jewish law mandates exactly one harvest, the harvest of the Omer, which it says has to happen the night before the 16th of Nisan. So let's say the 16th of Nisan came out on the Sabbath. The night before is Friday night. It's Sabbath. You can't harvest. But mandatory harvesting, you have to harvest. And therefore, the law to harvest the barley on Friday night for this offering overrides the prohibition, the general prohibition of harvesting on the Sabbath. And you harvest the barley on Friday night for the special offering, the meal offering of barley brought once a year on the 16th of Nisan.